0: All right, so just a reminder about where you are in this uh, study. We've been going through the book of Romans. Some of you have been going through the book of Romans since Romans 1.1. Some of you came into the book of Romans at Romans 9.1. That's when we merged two adult Sunday school classes together. The class that merged in left our systematic theology class right before they got to eschatology, the study of the end times. Well, when we got to the end of Romans 11, we thought, what a great time to go back and finish that because it all ties together. And so you, for the next six weeks or so, are going to be studying eschatology, not necessarily from the book of Romans, though I'm sure we'll see the book of Romans here and there, but as a whole, biblical theology going to different parts of the Bible, tying together the end times picture, okay? That's what we're working on for the next few weeks. And the first piece of the end times puzzle, as you can see here is this concept of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now, to give you just a brief definition as we get started, the day of the Lord is any time that God enters into judgment, but there is an ultimate future day of the Lord. So there have been, in one sense, several days of the Lord when when, when the Lord has reckoned with nations and their day of judgment has come. You can think about the different kingdoms that have risen and fallen. You can think of the ways that God has dealt with Israel in the past, where they have felt his judgment, they've uh, experienced his judgment. And so there, really in one sense, it's any time God enters into judgment, but there is an ultimate future day of the Lord that Scripture talks about, and that ultimate future day is what we're going to be focused on uh, as we go through this study this week and next week. And so I want to give you the big picture of the day of the Lord, uh, I've already given it to you in the form of a handout. You can see there's a basic timeline of the day of the Lord. But I want to go over that and give you that big picture before we get into some of the particulars. Your handout, I think, says scent instead of scene. It's supposed to say scene. So you can fix that if you want. The first, it's not the first scent, but the first scene of the day of the Lord. I, I don't know how it will smell, but uh, you can see the first scene of the day of the Lord. Uh, And that first box, as we look at the timeline, the first scene is when Israel will be plundered and terrorized. And we're going to look at a variety of passages that show that. Uh, But I've just given you a couple up here. I've given you more on the sheet. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Matthew 24, 21. Rex, it's that first box on the left side. That's where we are on the basic timeline. There you go, right there. What's this? Well, I can't see it. What is it? The same thing it says. Oh, yeah, you only need one. And you can give that one to someone who doesn't have one. (laughs) Who doesn't have one? Okay, so it, it begins when Israel will be plundered and terrorized. It continues on, now moving to that middle box, when the Lord returns with his saints to destroy his enemies and bless Israel as he sets up his kingdom. And this, of course, coincides with what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the son returning, having a kingdom that he then hands over to the father. But that's the, uh, the day of the Lord also in Scripture, and we're going to see that here. Just a couple passages the end of Obadiah, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, both talk about this specific time within the day of the Lord. And then finally, the day ends when the Son's kingdom is handed over and there's a new heaven, and new earth that God creates. He creates all things new. 2 Peter 3 is a great passage for that. When the day of the Lord comes like a thief and that transitions into what Peter calls the day of God. When all things, that, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, Peter says. And all things will be made new. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth. That's ultimately where the day of the Lord ends. So you can understand just by these basic points that the day of the Lord is not a literal 24 hour day, right? We're not talking about a 24 hour period. We're talking about an extended period where there are a variety of events that take place. And Scripture refers to these events as the day of the Lord uh, happening within that day. Any thoughts or questions about the basic timeline before we? Get into more stuff here. Okay, doing all right? Good deal. Well, um, in order to arrive at a biblical view of the end times, we must start with good Bible study methods, good Bible interpretation methods. We need to have a refresher on the way we approach the Bible so we understand how we're reading. These passages, and why actually, why we're even going in the order that we're going in when it comes to looking at certain passages. I just gave you a big overview with passages from Old and New Testament, but as we start studying this specific time, the Day of the Lord, we're going to start in the Old Testament and work our way to the New. And so I want to refresh you as to why we're doing that. The first thing I want to remind you of is context. Context, context, context. When you're in a a hermeneutics class and a Bible college, you'll often hear the phrase, context is king. That doesn't mean that context has usurped Jesus as king or usurped God as king. That's not what that means. But in Bible study, the priority is to understand the context. Because I'm sure all of you have been in conversation with somebody who uses the Bible in a way that's inappropriate. They just pull a verse, and they have this crazy, weird theology, and they pull a verse out of somewhere, and they say, see, the Bible says it right there. And you say, now, wait a second. Uh, Okay, if you just had that verse and nothing else, maybe you could get your view, but that we have more stuff. You know, if someone quotes, you know, 1 Corinthians 9, 6, I don't know what that verse says, but if someone says that, we have nine verses or nine chapters and five verses that come before that. And if you know your Bible, you know that there are almost eight chapters that come after that. So there's a lot of context to consider, and that's the first thing we need to consider when we study the Bible. Each book of Scripture was written with purpose to certain people in a specific time and in a specific place. So that is just real basic what context is. You want to understand who's writing, why that person is writing, that's purpose. Who that person's writing to, when that person is writing, and what is the ho- historical context or cultural context surrounding that writing. Now, this is work, and it's dry, and it's boring, isn't it? We start talking about this stuff, and there aren't a lot of like big flashing fireworks going on, like, wow, this is just really amazing. This doesn't get your heart rate up. But if you skip this, then you might be getting your heart rate up about the wrong things, So in order to get your theology right, your biblical doctrine right, you have to understand how you should approach the Bible. And in a real basic sense, this is talking about context, or this is our focus. It's context. And you could say, you know, with with this all in mind, if you want to put it in a phrase. So what does context mean? It means we are searching for the original intent of the author. We're searching for the original intent of the author. Just still using Paul's letter to the Corinthians as an example. You want to know what Paul wanted the Corinthians to know. That's why you're reading the book of 1 Corinthians. That's why you're studying the book of 1 Corinthians. You're not reading that book so that you can have some sort of mystical experience for some new meaning. That's not why you read any book of the Bible. I hope not. You want to know the original meaning. What was Paul saying to the Corinthians or John saying to his audience or Obadiah saying to his audience? We, we take that approach. And so we could say this about our hermeneutic. And hermeneutic is just the way we interpret the Bible. Okay. So how would we describe the way that we interpret the Bible? Well, first, we say that it's literal. Literal. The Bible means what it says apart from any hidden meanings. Each author wanted his audience to understand what he was saying. Do you believe that? Do you want people to understand what you're saying? All the parents in the room should be saying amen, (laughs) all right? Do you want your audience to understand what you are saying? Yes. Yes, you do. Okay, do you think Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, do you think he wanted his audience to understand what he was saying? He wasn't trying to write in some sort of secret code. You, you see these books that come out from time to time or these DVDs you can buy or late night television programs cracking the hidden code of the Bible. Really? Really? Because you start playing that game and you know what you can do? You can make the Bible say anything you want. You can equate certain letters with certain numbers, and you can make certain numbers mean certain things in our world today, and then next thing you know, you have a meaning from the Bible that no one has ever had that has nothing to do with the original author or the original audience. Do you think God wants you to do that to his word? No. No. So we are looking for what the Bible means, and we start with just a literal approach. It means what it says apart from any hidden meanings. The author wanted his audience to understand, so we want to understand what he said. Secondly, we can say it's grammatical. The Bible features different genres and different figures of speech, doesn't it? Now these metaphors and similes and things of that nature, these are used by the author to convey a meaning. So there is a meaning behind each metaphor. There are some people that you'll come across out there who take the metaphors or the similes as though they are real descriptions of who God is or who man is. So for instance, uh, Jesus in Matthew twenty-three: 23, oh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you or your children to my side as a hen gathers her, her chicks. So Jesus is a chicken. Now this is an extreme example, right? So, so, is Jesus a chick? Well, no, he's not a chick. Does, does he have wings and feathers that he gathers uh, chicks with? Well, no. But when you go to the Old Testament, you'll see language like, The Lord led Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Has God got a hand and an arm? That's a metaphor, isn't it? It's a metaphor to help us understand the power of God. And so we look for figures of speech in the Bible. And we don't take a wooden literalism to every single passage apart from figures of speech. Because the Bible is a literary work, isn't it? And if God is behind it, and he is, it's the best literary work that's ever been composed. And it's going to feature poetry, the book of Psalms. And poems are going to feature figures of speech. Because that's a part of the way God designed communication. It's a part of the beauty of the Bible. So it's literal, it's grammatical, it's also historical. Meaning that the Bible was composed in various cultures at various times. The historical setting or the historical context of the author and the audience has to be taken into account as we pursue the author's meaning. Have you ever been reading scripture and come across a term like a denarii or a cubit? And you thought, what is that? And thankfully, we've got study Bibles now where you'll have like that little one or two next to it and you can go look. And Oh, a cubit is about 18 inches or 16 inches or whatever. Oh, okay, that's good. And a denary is about worth this much in your money today, your currency today. okay, that helps. So we have to get in a little bit at least to the historical setting to understand some of the terms that come up. Then you go to the Old Testament and there's all sorts of historical factors at play in the narrative of Scripture that we have to search out and study. Now this is not a, a means to write off the relevance of certain passages. So, because again, sometimes you'll come across people who will say, uh, because of the Bible's history, because it is a historical book, well that means that it's not relevant for today. So if you go back to Leviticus or Deuteronomy, and you see the sexual ethics that God has given his creatures, men and women, and how they are to behave sexually. Certain people today, in fact, a lot of people today, are going to say, well, the Bible's an ancient book. It was that way then, but it's different now. And so they use the historical setting as a means of writing off what's relevant for today. That's bad, isn't it? And we shouldn't do that. You can hear that in the science world a lot. Genesis 1 and 2, God creating out of nothing, no evolution mentioned, Well, that's the historical setting. I mean, back then, they they weren't able to put things through the scientific method back then. They didn't have telescopes. They didn't have microscopes. They didn't have this, that, or the other thing. And so they take the historical setting, and they write off the relevance of the passage. Now, we can't do that. So you have to be careful when you you get into that. But we recognize that the history does play a part in the way we understand the passage. And then finally, our hermeneutic is plain or consistent, you could say. The normal and customary meaning of a word is always favored, and Scripture is always consistent with itself. No passage of Scripture should receive a special interpretive method from us because it doesn't jive with our preconceived notions. Now, that's tough to do, because who in here has preconceived notions? Raise your hand. Jim, you don't have preconceived notions? (laughs) meet the perfectly neutral man <laughs> we all have preconceived notions that we bring to scripture you have theology that you bring to scripture and that's good however your theology should never override what the scripture's telling you and this gets really difficult because we all have certain things that we think should be this way or that way and then we might come across a passage that says oh no it's, it's actually that way so what are you going to do what we're tempted to do is say, well, it must mean this. It must, if you look at it this way and, and, can, and interpret it this way, well, then you come up with a different result. And you could be asked the question, are you interpreting that passage the same way you interpret all the other ones around it? And if you're honest with yourself, you'd have to say, well, no, I made a special exception. I, I made a hidden meaning in this one. <laughs> we have to be careful about that. So this is probably the most challenging, is to be consistent with our hermeneutic because we all will have our preconceived notions challenged. Okay? Any questions on those four elements? Literal, grammatical, historical, consistent? Okay. Again, I know I'm not like lighting the room on fire today, but uh, we have to talk about it. Okay? All right. Very good. God's revelation to us. Let me give you three more slides before we get into the day of the Lord. We believe in progressive revelation, progressive revelation. God has revealed more and more about himself and his plan of redemption over time. So consider Adam and Eve. What did they know about angels? We'll use angels as an example. Now in one sense, they probably knew more than we did because, of course, God placed one in the garden whenever they were kicked out of the garden, right? So they had an experiential knowledge. However, did they have the passages that we have in the book of Daniel or in the Psalms or in the New Testament that describe the angels? No, they didn't. And so we recognize that over time, God has revealed more and more about everything. And he didn't just drop on Adam and Eve the Bible. He didn't just, boom, drop it all there. But over time, there has been more and more that's revealed. And a great example of this is in the New Testament where we see that word mystery. And we've talked about that in Romans 11. That word comes up in Romans 11. Mysteries are things that were previously hidden, doctrines or events that were previously hidden from man that God has now revealed. So that happened over the course of time. It had to happen over the course of time. Previously previously hidden, now revealed. So Revelation is progressive in that sense. And what's important to note is that newer revelation does not replace older revelation. And it also doesn't change the meaning of the original. So there's a guy in the early church, his name is Marcion. And he loved the New Testament, hated the Old Testament. You know some people like that? (laughs) Uh, The God of the New Testament, he's cool. God of the Old Testament, uh, wow, that doesn't seem like the same person Marcion would say. And this, in his circles, gave rise to just kind of riding off the Old Testament. And you just favor the New Testament. And you'll hear that from contemporary preachers today. In fact, Andy Stanley, he's a, uh, the son of Charles Stanley, pretty famous preacher, pastor, big church in Atlanta. He became uh, somewhat famous a few years ago uh, for a particular statement he made that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Quit being hitched to the Old Testament. Unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Jerry, what do you think of that? He is the dark. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's not something we're looking to do, right? And, and this bottom pair of sentences here, that newer, newer revelation does not replace older revelation and newer revelation does not change the meaning of the original revelation, This is why we're approaching the subject of the day of the Lord the way we are. It's why we approach uh, any biblical doctrine the way we do. Again, we're going to be starting in the Old Testament and working our way to the New Testament. And what's that going to do? If you consider progressive revelation, the information that's here on this slide, how are we going to be learning as we start in the Old Testament and work our way to the New? Just give me some basic feedback about how this is going to work as we study the Word of God. Good, Yeah, expounding. So expounding, not replacing. That's important. So we're building, aren't we? We're not substituting with newer stuff. We're building on and we're keeping the older stuff as God fills out the picture. Because that's what God's doing with, this, with these doctrines, isn't it? As he reveals his word, he's filling out the picture. When prophets and apostles spoke from God... They delivered a message to the people that was understood by themselves and their audience. That does not mean, though, that they knew everything about what was going to happen. And a clear text for this is in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, the prophets looked in to these prophecies that they were given, and they wanted to know about the person and timing that they spoke of, Jesus Christ. But they weren't given a T-700 years until Messiah They weren't given that sort of timing, were they? And they weren't given, hey, he's going to be about five foot four, dark hair. You know, they weren't given that, were they? He's going to have a birthmark here. So they weren't going around looking at birthmarks for people to see if the Messiah was there. But they were given some information. In fact, they were given a lot of information. But they weren't given everything. They did not know all the details of the fulfillment. But God also did not speak to them in a way that would misguide them. So we're starting... You can picture it this way. We're starting, as we study doctrines like this, we're starting with portions of a portrait, and it gets filled in more and more as time goes on. And I'm going to use a very elementary illustration for this. If you were in the hermeneutics class that we did a few months ago, we had a better way of illustrating this at that point. But it's like, okay, we're going to look at Isaiah first. In fact, you can go ahead and turn there if you want. Isaiah 13 is where we'll be in a moment. And when we go and read from Isaiah 13, we're going to get some bits and pieces about the day of the Lord. We're going to read, I think it's eight verses. No, it's 11 verses. We're going to read 11 verses from Isaiah. And you're going to find out some interesting information about the day of the Lord. But are you going to know everything that scripture has to say about the day of the Lord? Of course not. There are other passages, other books that talk about this same day and give us more information. And so as we go from Isaiah To Joel today we get this from Isaiah and then when we go to Joel he'll give us a little more in certain areas try to follow the lines I erased earlier he'll give us a little more in certain areas and we start to see more of a picture here don't we? You've got Isaiah and Joel together but you're still perhaps not grasping what the whole picture is and so you go to Amos you go to Amos and Amos gives you a little more And you're starting to see more and more of the picture. And it goes on through the Old Testament as we're studying the word of God, as God has given it to his people. And then you start to see you've got a very cartoony looking tree. (laughs) But you see the fuller picture as time goes on. And then you get all of God's word on the subject at the end. As you go from Old Testament into the New Testament. And that's the way that we're approaching this study. Though the full significance of prophecies was veiled to those prophets to whom they were given, the basic meaning was not. It is highly improbable that all the prophets understood the fullness of every prophecy they wrote. However, they understood enough to believe and obey God in their particular age. So you go back to what the picture looked like at the beginning. It's like, wow, they didn't know a lot. When God gave the first prophecy about the day of the Lord, they just knew a few things. But that was enough for them to believe and obey God in their day, wasn't it? And what we have, we want more, especially on end times things. How is this all going to end? We want to know more. God, give us more. But he's given us enough, hasn't he? Enough to believe and obey in our day. So that's the way that we're approaching uh, the subject from our hermeneutic. Now I'll pause again for thoughts or questions before we get into Isaiah. You guys are just doing all right, I guess. And no one's sleeping yet, so we're really doing okay. Very good. Okay, Isaiah 13. We're going to start at verse 6 of Isaiah 13. And to get you guys a little more involved, how about someone read that for us? Isaiah 13, verses 6 to 16. Isaiah 13, verses 6 to 16. Who can read that for us? Okay, go ahead.
1: Well, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast as one at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put men to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth
0: So, you've gotten a few pieces of uh, the puzzle there, a few elements of the overall picture. What did you see? What is this day going to be like according to that passage? Uh, Okay, keep going. There's a lot that you could say. Horrible. That's a good summary term.
2: Destruction from the Almighty in verse 6. So, Basically
0: capitalized. Yeah. Um, destruction from the Almighty. So who's inflicting the punishment or the judgment? God, God himself. You think that's an important thing to know? Yeah. isn't it? That's, uh, that means there's going to be a lot of death because we know um, I gave it to you on your sheet the day of the Lord is future spoken of here by Isaiah isn't it? He's saying this will happen it's a future event and if this event is still future to us we know how many people we have on the earth today and wow um, a lot of people are going to be taken out if they're going to be scarce God will exterminate sinners it says here The world will be punished for sin. That's why they're being punished. Mortal man made scarce. God's burning anger revealed. So yeah, you could say horrible day, terrifying day, frightful day. Man, you don't want to be around on that day. You look at just those last verses of the passage. Verses 15 and 16. Anyone who is found will be thrust through. Anyone captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Houses plundered, wives ravished. What a terrible, terrible day. Wow. Now, let me ask you this. Has this happened yet? Now, of course, I said this, and then I asked this question. How silly is that? Giveaway. (laughs) However, now we do need to recognize, like I said at the beginning, When God's judgment is is poured out on a nation, group of people, you could call that the day of the Lord or a day of the Lord. In fact, uh, there are places you could go to where you can see uh, God saying, I'm going to do this to this nation and he's done it in history and that's called a a day of the Lord, a day of reckoning, God's judgment. Yet are there elements in here that have not happened yet? Well, certainly. Certainly there are elements that have not happened yet. You think of the, the cosmic signs. Uh, that are that are to come. There are, there are a variety of things. As we look through these passages, we're going to see some things where it's like, okay, well, God did render judgment on that nation or that kingdom, and he did send people, and they were ravished. That did happen. Yet we do see there's an ultimate day that's coming, and there are certain elements that have not yet been fulfilled. I like this quote from commentator Robert Chisholm. The day of the Lord encompasses several specific past days or events. These include the destruction of the Northern Kingdom, the Babylonian exile, Babylon's conquest of Egypt, and the fall of Babylon. These examples of the Lord's intervention in history prefigure that final time period when he will annihilate his enemies on a more universal scale and restore Israel. So there is a universal nature to these prophecies, isn't there? And we see them on small scales in the way he deals with the Babylonian Empire, for instance. And and others. But there will be an ultimate day where a more universal uh, destruction of his enemies is going to take place. Joe.
2: Restore Israel. Does that mean people all over the earth or is that the been...
0: nation? You asked that last Sunday school class, I mean, didn't I don't you? I not <laughs> 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 I'll record an answer and you can just keep it with you. And every time the question comes up, you can just listen to it again. <laughs> well, you know. It's, it's definitely from outside of the nation. And we're going to see that in the sermon today. Uh, God is explicitly says, from the places they were driven out, they will be regathered back to their own soil. So there you go. And we'll give you a couple passages that you can have on hand. Okay, all right, very good. Well, let's go to Joel. Joel chapter 2. And we are actually going to look at this whole chapter. This might be where we finish today. We might make it to the next one. But let's go to Joel 2. Joel has a lot to say about the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2. the moon being turned to blood Um, there's a a great example will the uh, physical elemental structure of the moon change from a big rock to a sphere of liquid blood doesn't seem appropriate to uh, translate it that way does it, Uh, that seems quite strange the moon will turn to blood and the sun darken Uh, we understand in both of those Statements, both of those prophecies, that there's a light change going on. The sun is being darkened. Okay, that's clearly talking about the, the light of the sun is going to be minimalized in some sense. And the moon, instead of being white, is going to turn to red in some sense. And, and there are some people who have uh, really gotten into this prophecy. Uh, John Haggie is one of them. Do us all a favor and don't buy his books. Okay? Uh, He has books like The Four Blood Moons, et cetera, et cetera. Because there are times, of course, when our moon turns that red color, that orangish red color. And it's like, okay, that's pretty interesting. Uh, We we see it happening. And so, in some sense, it appears as though the light of the moon is going to change to appear as as blood. Um, Now, this is Isaiah. We see the same thing spoken of here in Joel. We're about to read it in Joel 2. The sun darkened and the moon turned to blood. We see Peter in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to get to that next week. <laughs> Peter in Acts 2, he's saying the sun's going to be darkened and the moon turned to blood. And he's quoting Joel there. So we, we have this repeated over and over again in Scripture. And perhaps there was a sense in which God did use cosmic signs. But in the end, there's going to be this ultimate fulfillment where everyone's going to see it, and it's going to be an undeniable cosmic sign that God's, or the Lord's day, the day of the Lord is, has initiated. And so... Um, within that prophecy there are literary elements but that is not to say that the whole thing is just metaphorical and we just write it off so we we interpret it with our literary lenses on, grammatical lenses on, but we also don't just say, well that means that the whole thing is metaphorical for whatever we want it to mean because the moon won't turn to literal blood it won't change its atomic structure into blood well that means that the passage can mean whatever we want it to say eh, that's not it that's not it. And so we keep this idea of cosmic signs, but recognize that within the prophecy, he's using some literary language. All right, let's get three volunteers for Joel. So first volunteer for verses one through 11. Okay, second volunteer for 12 to 20. Who can read Joel 2, 12 to 20? Jerry? And then Joel 21 to the end. Who can read that section? 221 to the end. Last volunteer maybe for today. Thank you, maybe. Okay, so uh, Rex will start verses 1 through 11 and we'll I'll pause between each one and we'll talk about what we just read. So go ahead, Rex, 1 to 11. Blow the
3: trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, the day of darkness and gloom, and the day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors, they scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving on their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city, they run along the wall, they climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are behind <clears throat> beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it?
0: All right. So before we talk some of the details in there, the first detail to notice is, of course, when is this day going to take place from Joel's vantage point? Uh, Verse 1 gives you the clearest statement. Okay, so still talking in a future sense. He's not talking about it is here. He's saying it is near. So it's a future sense, isn't it? And what are some of the things that we saw so far that are similar to Isaiah or different from Isaiah? What did you see? Okay, yeah, so we have creatures. That's a safe word because that can mean all kinds of things, right? We have uh, creatures, I would say people here. This There are some definite interpretive challenges to the book of Joel, especially Joel 2. But you have people, it says in verse 9, and I interpret as people, who rush on the city, run on the wall, climb into the houses, entering through windows like, like thieves. Okay. Uh, this is... It kind of expanding on what we heard from Isaiah, that last verse in that Isaiah passage where it said babies will be killed, wives will be rav- ravished. In between there, it said houses plundered. Here's kind of the same idea, isn't it? They're going to go through the windows like a thief. What about the cosmic signs here or ge- geographical signs? The earth shaking
3: and the uh, sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened?
0: Yes. Yeah, so we see, again, the same darkening language. Joel adds thick clouds, doom, darkness. Okay, So we can say for sure it's a day of destruction, right? A day of darkness and gloom. And we'll just like, pause with the observations there. Now someone, was uh, it Jerry read 12 to 20? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so uh, I could have put put these bullet points up earlier, but we can say, of course, there's going to be nothing like this day, right? This is a very unique day, and again, we're not talking singular day, but a very unique time, and uh, the fire and cosmic signs that he mentions are important to know, too, just as attributes of the day. But we see here in this section that Jerry just read a glimmer of good news, finally, From Isaiah and so far in Joel, it was just all bad. But what what's good that we see now in these last few verses? The Lord has pity. The Lord has pity. Yeah, it starts back several verses, right? When it says in verse thirteen that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. Okay, now that makes us feel. A little bit warmer. (laughs) That's a little cozier for us. Again, you know, someone like that Marcion character I was telling you about, who said the God of the New Testament is totally different than the God of the Old Testament. Well, when you read passages like this, verse 13, uh, we don't just see God's justice here, but we also see God's grace, don't we? We see not just God's wrath poured out on sin, but we also see God's mercy to forgive sin. You see both in both testaments, if you're reading the Bible fairly. But yeah, God is a relenting God, a patient God, a loving God. What else? What else do we see? He'll leave a blessing behind. Him. In what form? Does not know. Does not say.
2: It just says, "Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him?" Oh, oh. grain offerings and.
0: Oh, that's what, which translation are you using? I am NASB. Um, oh, which year? 77? Um, yeah. Ah, there it is. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's not the 70s anymore. The 70s called, they want their Bible back. No, it's the 90s. <laughs> New American Standard 77 is fine. It just has different words sometimes. A little, It gets a little King Jamesy a little bit. But uh, yeah, it says in the 95, a grain offering and a drink offering. Okay. Good. What else as you keep going down closer down to verse 20? What what else are we seeing? The good news. What is God going to do?
1: The Lord will be
0: zealous land and will have pity on his people. Whose land? His land. His. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Uh, I remember, you guys remember Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man? I remember one time he said, uh, God doesn't care about real estate. I remember just hearing that quote. Um, he was answering uh, some objection to his view of end times and said, God doesn't care about real estate. Well, I would say Joel 2.18 kind of debunks that theory, doesn't it? God is zealous for his land. Okay, that's that's pretty... Pretty interesting. What else is he going to do? Keep reading, 19 and 20. All right. Again, thinking about the context, who's Joel speaking of when he says his people, uh, verses 18 and 19, we see the phrase his people, talking about God's people. When we see... uh, the word for land, or the word land, when we see down in verse 20 about armies being removed from you, who's in view here? Israel. Okay, well, we didn't exactly have a resounding response there, did we? No. Do you think Joel's talking about anybody else besides Israel? No, okay, no. He's, he's speaking to Israel. Because who was Joel a prophet in? What, what nation was Joel a prophet in? Come on now, people. You don't have to be scared. Who was Joel's audience? Yeah, Jews. And so when he says you, who is the author speaking to? Okay, all right. Okay, so you don't have to be scared. It's okay. Yeah, and so what's going to happen to them? Well, he's going to send new grain, new wine, and oil. They'll be satisfied and full with them. And look at the end of verse 19. God says, I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. That's an important element of the prophecy. They will dwell in safety, surrounded by other nations. Has Israel ever had that privilege? <laughs> no, they haven't. But here it's prophesied that that's going to happen. All right, verses 21 to the end. Keep thinking through the context here. And uh, man, 21 to the end of the chapter. Fear not, land, Be glad and rejoice,
2: for the Lord has done great Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundant rain the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sit among you. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of your Lord, your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and that there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Um, Sorry. And it it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all the flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens, and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, when the Lord has said, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors. I'll be
0: those whom the Lord calls. Okay, so there's a lot of amazing stuff in here. And you, if you're keen this morning, you're seeing certain passages that we see in the New Testament. I gave you one earlier, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2, talking about this prophecy, pouring out his spirit on all mankind. Um, you see also whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered or will be saved. And so we see an already aspect of this prophecy, right? Aren't we living in a time where God has poured out his spirit on all those who call on his name from any nation. Hasn't that already begun? I would hope if you're a spirit-filled person here this morning, you say, yes, that has already begun, right? Because that includes us. Okay? So God is doing something amazing in the world and it has already begun, but it has not all yet come to fruition what it will be. When God talks leading up to verse 28, and these verses 26, 27, he's talking about how the Jews are going to have plenty to eat. They will be satisfied. They will praise the name of God. They will never be put to shame. He will be in the midst of them, and they will know it. And the people, he repeats at the end of verse 27, the people will never be put to shame. Has that happened yet? Well, no, it hasn't. Have we seen, like, perhaps little glimpses? of his restorative work, his his redeeming work in Israel. Well, yeah, they were delivered out of the Babylonian exile. Have you read Ezra, Nehemiah, those books? There's amazing things that he has done, but it's not yet totally what he promised it will be. And so there's coming a day where there's going to be this total fruition, the universal fulfillment of these promises in a way that we've never seen before, where they will never again dwell in fear. Is Israel today, do they have recent To be afraid of their enemies. Yeah. Yeah, You see it in the news quite a bit, don't you? But what's God's promise? They'll never again be put to shame. And they'll dwell in peace and safety among the nations. And so that day is coming. Where they will never again be put to shame. Thoughts on Joel 2. Is that all you were going to say? I was waiting for more. Um,
4: more in chapter 3?
0: Yes, I, truly when you're... <clears throat> when, when you want to do a study on the day of the Lord, eschatology in general, it is good to take <clears throat> these prophets as a whole. Uh, it gets more challenging when you go to books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, those are quite big. You know, Joel's four chapters, I think, or three chapters three. Um, so read all of Joel. You can do that this week and learn more. Okay? Well, let's at least start the next passage, which is Amos. It's the next book, so you just got to turn a page or two over. Amos chapter five. Let's start this passage today and Tyler will probably finish it for us next week. And would someone read just verses 16 and 17? Amos 5, 16 and 17. Who would read that for us? Let's find the most mediocre reader in, in the class here today. Who's the most medium reader? Because everyone's thinking, i got to be a really good reader. No, no, no. We're just looking for a medium, average. I have a reading, Okay. Our very average reader, Mandy. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord.
0: All right. So you see this, uh, again, dark picture, judgment that God is pouring out. And you move into verse 18, and here we get our phrase. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Can you imagine, uh, verse 19, escaping a lion? I can't. (laughs) And then can you imagine, oh, I lost the lion. And then you hear the growl of a bear. (laughs) And you take off and you get away from the bear. And you finally get home, and it's the worst day of your life. (laughs) And you're just leaning against the wall. And a snake bites you. Oh my goodness. Not exactly the most optimistic time in the world, is it? That's what the day of the Lord will be like, God says. It will be just a day of terror and destruction. Now is Amos talking past, present, or future? Yeah, right. I mean, you see it starting in verse 18 there. He is speaking of a future time. This day will be like this. It's a time in the future and I'll just give you two things to dwell on from Amos. Uh, of course, it's a time of wailing and lamenting. Okay, he's already mentioned that, uh, that. Explicitly, it'll be such as that. But the, also that the Lord will be present on earth. Again, verse 17, I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. And this is an important element of the day of the Lord that, that we shouldn't lose sight of. God is actively involved. This isn't a time where God goes hands-off and now just let the world crumble, let the world uh, destroy itself. He's just going hands-off and just, okay, go ahead, destroy yourselves. That's not it. But God is there passing through the midst of them. He's actively involved bringing about the judgment and the terror that's happening to people. That's pretty intense, isn't it? It's a lot more intense than him just backing up and people destroying themselves. God is actively doing it. The destroying. So, thoughts or questions on that cheery future event?
3: True.
0: Yep, this is going to be a a great and terrible day um, on the face of the earth. Notice, too, some of that universal language that's been used in Isaiah and Joel and perhaps even here. Uh, God talks about this is going to affect the world. It's not going to be a localized day of the Lord. What separates the day of the Lord from previous days of the Lord is that he's not just dealing with one kingdom. He's not just dealing with one nation. He's dealing with the world with this. And this, there's great terror that's going to come upon the whole world. So... Um, it will be an awful day, a day of God's active judgment on the world because of their sin. Which at the end of the day, we say, we deserve, don't we, for our sin. Now we have hope, as First Thessalonians 5 talks about, and we'll look at this next week. We have great hope that that day will not overtake us. Because we were not destined for wrath, but for salvation. 1 Corinthians 5.9 talks about this. You were not destined for wrath. Are you happy about that? Because do you deserve wrath? But you were not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we look forward to the deliverance that we have from the God who saved us. Well, how about I pray and then uh, we'll just, sorry if you don't like end time stuff, it's just kind of an end timesy day. Uh, we, we are in a section in 1 Corinthians 15 where we're talking about uh, Christ's coming, his kingdom, abolishing death as the last enemy, looking forward to future events. That's just how it all lined up today. Uh, so we're here to, I know tomorrow's got enough trouble of its own, as Jerry reminded us, but the Lord has put our minds on tomorrow, today. So we're going to look at that together, but I'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we thank you so much for bringing us here for the day you've given us for our time to worship and honor you corporately, God, give us a sweet day of fellowship as we lift you up in each conversation, and the songs that we sing, in our times of study, and our times of prayer. God, cause us to just worship you rightly with an attitude that's pleasing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.